want to understand what really matters to a person? Look past what they say and look at their bank statement. Follow the money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus teaches us that how a person spends money reveals his or her heart, his or her values, his or her priorities. And the same thing goes for a church. So let me ask you a question. What does your budget reveal about your heart? What does our church budget reveal about our priorities? Here's the bottom line on this statement. Those who have received the generosity of God through the gospel of Christ ought to be marked by generosity to others. So our study of Paul's letter to the ancient church in Corinth brings us to chapter 16 this morning where he wants to talk to the church about giving and generosity. So I'd invite you to please take your copy of God's Word. If you didn't bring a Bible, don't have it on your iPhone, then we provided one there under your feet. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we're only studying four verses this morning. But as we do, friends, my prayer is that our church will display the gospel and glory of Christ by how we give. All right, let's read our sermon text. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That's God's word. Amen. Uh, just a short little snippet at the end of the letter. You can see we're almost done. We only have one more sermon in our study of Paul's letter to Corinth. We've, we've been here for 39 weeks now. Next week marks the 40th week and the end of this study. It's been fantastic. But I want you to notice how be, uh, Paul begins this last section, verse 1 of chapter 16. Notice the first two words. Now concerning. That's the sixth time that Paul has done this. He uses those words as a, as a marker throughout the letter to address various issues. There have been about eight different issues that he has addressed, and some of them at length, some of them like this one, only very briefly. But there have been a number of issues that Paul is addressing, either because of his concern his knowledge, something that someone told him from the church at Corinth, or we know that apparently the church at Corinth wrote him a letter and now he's responding some of, to some of their questions. Apparently, this was one of these 
uh, that they had asked him about this collection to the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul says in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now that might feel like Paul is just saying, okay, next subject, like a complete break from anything that we've been studying over the past five weeks in chapter 15. You remember that great study of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications for all of life. But friends, I submit to you that chapter 16 is not disconnected from chapter 15 at all. Look at one sentence ahead. The last thing Paul said in chapter 15, verse 48, is an encouragement to always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now Paul picks up the next to last issue he wants to talk about and says one of the aspects of your work on earth is through generous giving to others. Always abound in giving because what you give in the Lord is not in vain. So you'll notice here just this short little snippet, only four verses, has a clear structure. Verse 1, Paul introduces the subject, the collection for Jerusalem. Verse 2, the instructions for giving. And then verse 3 and 4, the plan for delivering the gift to Jerusalem. I want you to notice, especially right in the middle of verse 2, look at your Bibles, verse 2, Paul is encouraging not just the church as a whole. Like, for example, if I wrote or if somebody wrote a letter to Winchester Baptist Church, you would know that's to us, right? But Elisa might not take it personally. Paul is writing this letter to the church, but he says, Jill, Luke, Logan, each one of you. Do you see that in verse 2? Each one of you is to put something aside. Store it up so that you can give. What Paul says here to the church, he says to every person in the church. So this morning, this text is for all of us and each one of us. I hope you'll hear it that way today. Paul gives us six encouragements about displaying the gospel and glory of Christ by how we give. Not just that we give, but by how we give. The first of Paul's encouragements, number one, is this. Give to meet needs. Give to meet needs. Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. The church in Jerusalem had a need. And Paul wants the church in Corinth, a half a world away in those ancient times, He wanted the church in Corinth to participate in the need, helping to meet the need of the church in Jerusalem. 
Look there in verse 3. How do we know that it's the church in Jerusalem? Because they're going to carry this gift, verse 3, to Jerusalem. So Paul doesn't explain anything about the need here. Do you notice that? He just takes for granted that they already know about the need. Well, it's likely because he told them when he was there uh, one year earlier, or they had heard about the need in Jerusalem and heard about Paul collecting money for the Jerusalem church from other sources. And so likely their question to him by way of letter was, uh, how can we participate? Or, or how should we take this collection and then how do we get it to Jerusalem? Now think about the difficulties of that in ancient times. How do you get money from Greece to Jerusalem safely? So we need to understand a little bit about what's going on in Jerusalem at the time. Remember, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And in that time, uh, around 50, 55 AD, two things were happening in Jerusalem that caused the church, uh, aka the saints in Jerusalem, for them to have incredible poverty. They weren't just going through a little bit of financial difficulty to where they had to put a little extra on their credit card. They were going through incredible poverty, so much so that it was one of Paul's major uh, points of his mission trips in collecting money for the Jerusalem church. What was going on? Well, first of all, shortly after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended and the church got started, it was Saul, formerly the apostle Paul, formerly Saul, who was going around, and in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we learned that he was persecuting the church. The church was under incredible persecution, not just by one man, Saul, but by all of the leaders of Judaism at that time. They were shut down. Their businesses were shut down. They were stoned, many of them, put in the hospitals. You know, they they were beaten. Things were taken from them. And so the church uh, experienced tremendous persecution. They were stripped of their possessions. Many of them were prevented from getting jobs in the local Jewish establishments there in Jerusalem because they were of this new cult, the Christians. So you can imagine the persecution that they felt and the financial implications of this. The Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing poverty that they never experienced before because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And then a second thing happened, not just to the Christians, but to the whole world at that time. From 45 through 63 was called the Great Famine the Great Famine, and it was the longest and most devastating famine that occurred under Roman rule. People in Jerusalem were suffering just like people all over the world. So Paul was taking a collection from other churches to help the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Well, what we know from This is very, very little. But Paul wrote back to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. So we happen to know a lot about this issue 
because of 2 Corinthians. Will you, will you turn there, please? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We actually find out in 2 Corinthians 9 that when the Corinthian church heard about this, they were brokenhearted, and Paul uses the word zealous. They were zealous to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Paul says, I know about your readiness, your willingness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is Greece and Corinth, that Corinth has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. The church at Corinth was so excited about helping the church in Jerusalem that Paul was going around to other churches in the entire region, pointing at, at Corinth, saying, these guys get it, man. They are going to help. They're really enthusiastic about participating in this collection. He was using them as an example of eagerness. And so here in chapter 16, with that eagerness, they're writing saying, okay, Paul, how do we do this? How do we collect it? And then how do we deliver it to you? So Paul's giving them instructions in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians 1, a year earlier. Problem. Problem. Look at chapter 8. The church at Corinth started strong. But after one year, they still hadn't followed through. They were quick out of the gate and then fizzled out. So Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verse 7, urging the Corinthians to fulfill the commitment that they made. Look at verse 7. As you excel in everything, the Corinthians were at the top of their class in every area. Faith, speech, knowledge, all earnestness, and in your love, in our love for you, look at this, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Come on, Corinthians. Finish what you started. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. Paul says in this second or actually third or fourth letter, I'm sending the brothers, so he's actually sending emissaries, Titus. I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The Corinthians were zealous to help in the beginning, and after a year, they still hadn't followed through. Paul is now writing 2 Corinthians back, saying, come on, church, finish what you started. I've gone around bragging on you to everyone. This is a good thing. Finish what you've started. 
And so what's really interesting about that, just think about this dynamic. He's at the church, all the churches in Macedonia. Who is he using as an example of eager, zealous generosity? The church at Corinth. Now, he writes back to them one year later, 2 Corinthians 8. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. Who does he use as an example to the Corinthians of actual generosity? The Macedonians. And look what he says about what real, beautiful, gospel generosity looks like. Verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, look, it's not just the church at Jerusalem that was going through it. Macedonia was being afflicted at the time. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. They, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The Macedonian Christians had a generosity that was marked by joy in the midst of poverty. A wealth of generosity, giving according to and beyond their means. A generosity that came out of desire instead of guilt. A generosity that didn't just give their money, but what? Gave themselves to the Lord. Randy Alcorn says this. Christians are God's delivery people. Through whom... He does his giving to a needy world. We, friends, are the conduits of God's grace to others. Our eternal investment portfolio should be full of the most strategic kingdom-building projects to which we can disperse God's funds. God meets the needs of the people around us through us. Jerusalem had a need. And God did not just drop what they needed from heaven. He put what they needed in the pockets of Macedonia, Galatia, and Corinth and met their need through his people. So friends, my question is this. What needs are we supposed to meet? If the first thing we learn from this text today is that we give to meet needs, there's needs all around us. I mean, there's poverty all over the world. Just yesterday, as we were driving, there were, there were homeless people on every corner. What needs are we supposed to meet? Each one of us and we collectively as a church. Well, 
For sure, we're not responsible to meet every need, but there are some needs that we should meet, namely those in our sphere of responsibility and accountability. We should meet the needs in our own home. We should meet the needs of our own family. We should meet the needs of those in this church. Friends, we are responsible to help meet the needs of those people who live near us that we in our culture call neighbors. We should. We can't meet every need, but we can be used of God to meet those needs, can we not? Paul's point here is that the Christians in Jerusalem had a need that will require a, quote, wealth of generosity. And Paul urges the Corinthians to help meet that need. Finish what you started. But to encourage them to do so, he does not just use Macedonia as an example. He does not give a guilt trip. Paul gives them the real motivation behind generosity. Number two, we give because of the gospel. We give because of the gospel. Just let your eyes fall down to verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul doesn't explain that in 1 Corinthians 16. Why? Because they were already motivated. They were already zealous about giving and likely for all the right reasons. But when zeal faded, when the emotions wore off, Paul reminded them that the heart behind all Christian giving is the generosity of God through the gospel of Christ. Let me say that again. The heart behind all Christian giving is the generosity of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have received the wealth of the generosity of God through the fountain of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be the most generous people on the face of the earth. What is it about the gospel? What is it about the gospel that actually motivates, and not just motivates, but also empowers and equips and supplies our generosity. Well, let me suggest three things. Number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ has met our greatest need. Look there again at verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, Christian, don't just universalize that. For your sake, individually, Every single one of you, for your sake, Jesus Christ became poor so that you, 
by his poverty might become rich. We're not talking about money here. Friends, by our constant sin in thought and word and deed, we have accumulated a debt with God that we will never be able to pay. Jesus, who is infinitely rich with God, took our debt upon himself. And because Jesus took our debt upon himself, a great exchange happens by faith through grace in Christ. A great exchange. Jesus takes our debt and God forgives us. And we get his riches with God. And God restores us to a right relationship with him again. He takes our sin. We get his righteousness. That is justification by grace, through faith, in Christ, and nowhere else. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Are you ready? With just enough spiritual riches for you to get by. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. By faith in Christ, you are wealthy with God. All the spiritual blessings come to us in Christ. And when we understand both of that, both sides of that transaction, look, when we understand the debt of our sin, and we, when we understand the wealth of the riches that we gain through the generosity of God in Christ, then two things happen. Number one, we love the one who has been so gracious and so generous to us. If you were in debt that you could not pay and someone came along and paid your debt or completely forgave your debt, would you not be incredibly grateful for that forgiveness? Would you not love the one who forgave you much? Our problem is that we don't see ourselves as in debt before God. We are see ourselves as having a few bucks worth of debt, but not that big of a deal. Friends, we have a debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus paid the debt that he did not owe. The second thing that happens is we want to extend that same kind of grace and that same kind of generosity to others. Here's what John says. John described it like this. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and he sent him to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to what? Love one another. That's why Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's why Paul said, having received that kind of it, remember Paul said, I'm the biggest sinner on the face of the earth. I'm the one who was persecuting the church at Jerusalem. I'm the one who was holding the coats of those who were stoning the saints in Jerusalem. You talk about a debt? Paul felt his debt before God. He said, understanding what he had been forgiven and what he had been given, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Spending and being spent for people's souls becomes a glad ministry, a willing ministry of love because we know that for which we have been forgiven. So the gospel of Christ has met our greatest need and our giving then helps to meet the needs of others. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ motivate and empower Christians to give? Number two, the gospel of Christ does this. It brings unity across economic and ethnic barriers, divisions. The haves and the have-nots. When the haves begin to help the have-nots, it breaks down the barriers, doesn't it? And so giving financially to those who have a financial need also breaks down economic and ethnic barriers, and it replaces those with love and unity. And so that's what Paul specifically wanted to do here. You think about the barriers that were set up between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Gentiles of the whole rest of the world. We can't overlook that. That was massive in all of this. So what Paul did, for example, take a look at uh, Romans chapter 15. Just, just briefly flip, flip there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 15. When Paul was at the church, well, when he was writing to the church in Rome, he said something that he sort of repeated all over the place. We see this in Galatia. We see this in Corinth. We see it in Macedonia. One of the motivations that he wanted to give by collecting this money for Jerusalem is to bring unity between the church in Jerusalem and all the Gentile churches around the world. Why? Because that's the mothership. The church at Jerusalem was the first church. They are suffering today because they gave birth through their sacrifice to the apostles, the evangelists, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. So in Romans chapter 15, Paul says, one of the things that I want to do through this collection is I want to bring unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Where there used to be hatred and separation, I want to unite you. 
You guys in Corinth have an opportunity to show generosity back to the mothership. So read Romans chapter 14, verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, Corinth, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, verse 27, and indeed they owe it to them. Why? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. One of the commentators that I read said it this way, little, little would better establish the covenant participation of all God's people, Jew and Gentile, than the Apostle Paul's accompanying Gentiles back to Jerusalem with a gift from the next generation of churches populated with so many converted pagans. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't that be beautiful to your Jewish eyes currently suffering because of the sacrifice that you made for Jesus and his gospel to see a contingency coming from Macedonia and Galatia and Corinth bringing money to help you not because they have to but because they want to for your spiritual investment in them. Ah, it's beautiful. What is it about the gospel that specifically motivates and empowers Christians like us to give to others? First of all, Jesus met our need. We want to meet others' needs. Secondly, the gospel breaks down barriers, economic, ethnic. We have the opportunity for, through giving to break down those same barriers with the people around us. Third, the gospel of Christ demonstrates God's generosity that causes us to do what? Praise and thank God. That's the exact same thing that our generosity does to other people. It causes them to praise God. And really that goes back to why and how you gave the gift. If you just give the gift, and you don't associate it with the Lord Jesus Christ, then they have no ability to give praise to God for the gospel of Christ. But when we do things, generosity in the name of Jesus, then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You will be enriched in every single way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them. So first of all, we give to meet needs, but secondly, we give because of the gospel. It's the gospel that motivates generosity. We who have received 
the generous grace and wealth of God through the gospel of Christ can be generous to others. Number three. Number three, verse one and two, we give as a church. That's what Paul's teaching here. We give as a church. Look at verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints. I know you have some wealthy people there in Corinth, and so I want you to tap them and see if they will give large donations. You see that in the text? I don't either. Verse one, concerning this collection that I'm taking up for Jerusalem, as I directed the what? Churches of Galatia, so you, church, are also to do on the first day of the week, what are the next three words? Each of you is to put something aside. We give as a church because giving as a church emphasizes God's design to accomplish God's work through God's church on planet Earth. That's what God's doing, friend. God is not about individuals doing individual things. God is about his church accomplishing his mission to advance his gospel. And so we give, you give, each one of us gives as a church. And the church gives when each one of us gives. So you see the church emphasized in verse one, the churches of Galatia, now you as a church, then each one of you in verse two. Giving as a church creates unity within the church. Does it not? Giving as the churches, Galatia, Macedonia, Corinth, Jerusalem creates unity among the capital C church, the churches. Jesus is building his church, friend. He guarantees the success of his church. So the church is the most secure investment you will ever make. When you invest in the church of Jesus Christ, you are investing in something that Jesus promised the gates of Hades will not prevail against. God's advancing his gospel, not through individuals, but through his church, as each one of us participate. Giving as a church not only emphasizes God's design that way, but it makes giving a part of how we worship God, where do we see that in the text? On the first day. What's the first day? That's the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the day the church meets. That's the day the church gathers to worship. And Paul says, on the first day, each of you put something aside. Make giving part of your worship. How does that happen? When we recognize what God has given us, how can we not give? The generosity of God not only enables, but motivates our generosity to others. Proverbs 3 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Why? Because everything you have came from God. Paul has already reminded the the arrogant Corinthians of that, they felt self, 
sufficient. Paul has already said to them, don't you know that everything you have came from God? Paul reminds the pastor Timothy to tell the church in Ephesus, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, don't be haughty, don't set your hope or your confidence on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. And by doing so, listen to this. You're storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Ah, that Toyota, Toyota Tacoma that I really want is not truly life. But when we turn that which is temporal over, in generosity, it becomes eternal. We give to meet needs. We give because of the gospel and we give as a church. When we give as a church, friends, we combine our resources. And when we combine our resources, just look at this room. Just the 50 Three members of our church and those who regularly worship with us, when we combine our resources, we combine to a total of $240,000 a year to do gospel ministry here in our region and around the world. That's no chump change. $240,000 when we give as a church. And that's just the regular stuff. Talk to our deacon of finance and find out how long it takes for a need to be met. He'll tell you about four minutes. Send out a text. If you see a need, you better be one of the first ones to respond because it's gone. That need is met. This is a generous church. Why? Because I think we know what we have received in Christ. So we give as a church. We give locally to Abacare, to Rescue Mission, to the Laurel Center, to CCAP. We, we give regionally to church planting through the Pillar Network. We give uh, nationally through the Southern Baptist Convention. We give to train pastors in seminary. We give to disaster relief. You know that the, the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief is the third largest disaster relief organization in the world? only behind people like the Red Cross. I mean, they pull up in their buses and their vans and their trucks and their trailers, and our giving is there helping hurricanes and floods and all kinds of natural disasters. When we give, we give to partners who are in public schools where I can't go, can you? Like Noah Reese. We give to partners like the Snyders in the United Arab Emirates, who are helping to plant a church there. We give to plant churches through Sipo and Lungi Mafusi in South Africa. 
That's what we do together. Praise God. Let's give. As a church, Paul tells them on the first day of the week, each of you, as a church, is to give. Number four, how do we do it? Paul, how are we supposed to do this? Well, number four, give as part of your budget. I don't know if you've taken notes so far, but that would be a good one to write down. Give. Put giving as a line in your budget. That's what Paul teaches them. On the first day of the week, each of you is what? To put something aside and store it up. You're supposed to put it aside. What? Regularly. Every week. Put it aside. Store it up. You, you do this willingly. You do this freely. even told them, look, when I come there, I, I don't want this to be an exaction. I don't want it to feel like I'm trying to get you to give what you promised. I, this is a willing, free thing. Each is to play his or her part in a planned strategy of regular giving in a weekly response to God's blessings for us. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Paul said, the point's this, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's why our promise that we make every member of our church makes a promise to take care of the needs and the strategic budget of our church. Here's what we promise. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly. About how much am I supposed to give? Cheerfully and regularly. It's not that 10%'s for God, 90%'s for you. It's all God's. We don't have anything that we didn't receive. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of this church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Membership gets in on that. Membership promises that. And by God's grace, we've been doing that now for 11 years for His glory. And in a beautiful display of generosity here, here, and to all of our partners. Put it aside, store it up. And look how he ends this in verse 2, uh, this, this little section. He ends it by saying, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I think that's really interesting. What's behind that? Why does Paul say, look, I don't want there to be any collecting when I come. All right? Put it aside ahead of time, pile it up ahead of time, I don't want the collection to happen when I'm there. I think at least one possibility is that he doesn't want a last-minute fundraiser because a whole lot more money is raised when it's incremental, when it's intentional, than when, and when it's planned ahead than when it is if it's on the spur of the moment. 
And so he wants to allow a period of time. Now he's, this is a year ago. And he's, by 2 Corinthians, that letter, he's already waited a year for this to happen. And then also, I'm, I'm quite confident that Paul is not interested in these funds being raised on his personal ability to persuade people and his, his uh, charismatic personal, uh, uh, personality to, to give an emotional appeal. Giving is not an emotional thing. You don't, you don't put money in the collection plate based on whether the sermon happened to grip your heart that day. We give regularly and intentionally. Paul says, put it aside so that the collection's already happening when I'm there. I guess my question is, do you give this way? Do you give purposefully? Like, is it a line in your budget? Do you, do you give regularly? Do you give joyfully? Number five, look at verse two. Just keep reading verse two. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up What's that last phrase? As he may prosper. Give according to how you have prospered. Paul is not asking the Corinthians to go in debt to take care of the needs of Jerusalem. He is not asking them to go poor to help poor people. What he is saying is, as you have prospered, give. As you are able, give. Randy Alcorn, in his very good book, God, Money, and Possessions, just lays it on the line like this. God doesn't make us rich so that we can indulge ourselves and spoil our kids, or so that we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. God gives us abundant material blessing so that we can give it away and give it generously. God uses his people to meet needs. He puts his resources in our pockets, expecting us to be funnels, not buckets. So Paul clarifies here, As you prosper. And then again in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul clarifies that it's not the amount of money contributed that matters nearly as much as your eagerness, willingness to give. He says this, If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Reference the widow and her mind. From God's perspective, the heart of faithfulness and willingness has more value than the amount of money that we give. Friends, I don't care how much money you give. I care personally and pastorally about your faithfulness to God. And so here Paul teaches us to give according to how we have prospered. Giving as we prosper, recognizing that everything we have comes to us from God. And we honor him with the first fruits. Finally, 
We learn in verse 3 and 4 the logistics to give when there's accountability. Give when there's accountability. Look at 3 and 4. Paul sort of describes the logistics of the situation. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul knows that a collection, the size that he is getting from the churches of the Gentile nations has logistical challenges and extreme danger involved. You can't wire things in A.D. 55. There was no zeal. Money. Did they have paper money? Probably not. Ask Rob, he'll know. They had gold coins. When you collect gold coins from Galatia and Macedonia and Corinth and then have to get them by land and sea to Jerusalem, that's heavy stuff that requires a tremendous number of couriers. All of them putting their lives on the line because there's bandits in the countryside waiting. So Paul says... In answer to their question, how are we going to get this money to Jerusalem? He says, every church is going to send people who are appointed to deliver the money. You're going to send letters with them. Why? Saying, these people are from the church at Corinth. These people are from the church at Macedonia and from Galatia. And how beautiful is that? How beautiful is it when Personal representation from the Gentile churches shows up in Jerusalem. Messengers who are carrying what the saints desperately need from all across the world, meeting face to face with those who've sacrificed to make the gospel advance to their nation. Accountability is what causes generosity to flourish. So give where there's accountability. Friends, I'm so thankful for the accountability that our deacons and our elders have always demanded and built into the system here. There's checks and balances on those checks and There's just every which way that we're doing everything we can to make sure that when you give money to the Lord through this church, it gets there. And when we partner with people, we partner with people to make sure that there's appropriate accountability in place because accountability causes generosity to flourish. I can give freely knowing that it's secure. God is glorified Not in only how much we give, how we give, but how we take care of what's given. So those of you who are on the counting team and the accounting team, and deacon of finance, praise God for you. It's so sad when a local pastor is 
caught for embezzling $300,000 just up the street within the time of our tenure here in Winchester. Thank God for this. Well, what we've seen here today is this. We don't give, we don't give money because we expect God to give money back to us. That's not there. We don't give because we're obligated to donate some fixed portion of our income to God. Instead, we give because God met our need in Christ. And we want to help meet other people's needs. We give because God has been incredibly gracious and generous to us, not just in creation, but in redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give as a church. We give as a regular part of our budget. We give according to how we have prospered. And friends, we give because we know that God is also glorified by our accountability and stewardship of that money. May God be glorified as our church displays the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ through how we give. Let's pray together. Our generous Father, Please overwhelm us by how much you have given to us in Christ. Please do this so that we give cheerfully and regularly and proportionately. Please give us a, a perspective so that we would gladly part with what our world values in order to take hold of what you value. Father, I pray that our church would be known for its generosity and we would be wise in how we steward what is given so that we will display the gospel and glory of Christ by how we give. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.